Hi, welcome to Talk About the Passion. I'm your host, Christian Campagna, and today on a special episode of the podcast, I talked to Bob Mayo for his third appearance, this time for a new segment we are calling Point of Entry, wherein we talk about the phenomena of being a fan of a band for, say, 40-plus years, and how the first album you hear by a band orients your idea of what they should sound like. Before we get into the conversation, though, here's a brief story. I was thinking of some of the bands we end up discussing and where and uh, what I heard first. Uh, Bob and I are separated by about five years, uh, so his points of entry are are different than mine. In the suburban town I grew up in, uh, north of Boston, uh, Swampscott, Massachusetts, where, uh, on a side note, David Lee Roth uh, lived as a kid in uh, Fran Sheehan and Barry Goudreau from uh, the band Boston lived. Uh, Fran Sheehan would often be part of these like live concerts in the summer and like sometimes at the school where him and you know other semi notable musicians from the area would you know plod through stuff like Devil in a Blue Dress and Mustang Sally, pr- probably more than a feeling, but uh, who knows. Uh, and um, when I was about 13 years old, uh, I was in the group of teenagers that were uh, referred to as burnouts. We smoked uh, cigarettes, smoked weed, drank Budweiser, or, or whatever was in our parents' liquor cabinet. Uh, it, it's crazy to think, like, 13 years old. I'm not a parent, but I imagine uh, if your 13-year-old kid was out uh, smoking weed and, you know, drinking Budweiser, uh, he wouldn't be too happy. But I, I turned out okay, I guess. Um, so there was us and, uh, you know, between the, the three of us, uh, my close, my two closest friends, their parents were never around every day. We'd either go to this guy, Dave's house after school and smoke pot and listen to, you know, 2112, uh, Zappa, shake your booty and freak out and, you know, dark side of the moon. Or we'd go to Matt's house where his mother was, uh, an executive at Gillette. And she was never there, and uh, I, I even remember one time he saved her a joint and, and gave it to her when she came back or after like a long weekend or something, which is just crazy to think of a, a 13-year-old kid uh, giving his mother a joint. Um, but he lived there with his uh, older sister, who was 17, uh, in this big house that overlooked the, the main street in Swampscott, Humphrey Street. Uh, and then his sister had a boyfriend named Chuck, who was this older guy who had, you know, terrible tattoos. He had, like, a Grim Reaper, a Panther. I remember he had Aussie written on his forearm. And he would tell us these outlandish stories that, you know, sound so ridiculous to me now that I laugh anytime I think of them. Like, like Neil Peart uh, had some device that injected heroin into his legs when he played the bass drums, which, you know, what, <laughs> I, yeah. Uh, he was apparently at the recording of Ozzy's, uh, Speak of the Devil, and he claims it's him screaming, woo, woo, before one of the songs, which is just so clearly Ozzy Osbourne screaming that into the microphone. Uh, but, you know, at 13, 14 years old, we, uh, we thought Chuck was pretty cool. And he was part of this older group of, uh, burnouts. They were like royalty, not like, you know, creepy guys like Matthew McConaughey's, uh, character in, uh, Days to Confused, more just like... Those crazy guys in the early 80s that, you know, never wore a shirt. And, uh, you know, and if they did, there was a pack of cigarettes rolled in the sleeve, you know. If, if you've seen the movie Heavy Metal Parking Lot, it's those are the guys. 
you know, girls dug them, normal people feared them. And then there was an even this smaller group of kids in town, and I was one of these kids, and these were the kids that just walked around with boom boxes, blasting music, and uh, there was this older guy, Michael, who was kind of this big, tall guy. I remember he, he kind of looked like uh, the dad from, the Peter from Family Guy, but with like a long bowl haircut. And he was mostly like a rush and triumph guy. I don't know if he was a like Canadian, but uh, but you know, but he would be blasting stuff like Cygnus X One or you know Bytorn the Snow Dog, uh, you know Progressions of Power that album, uh, a deep cut triumph guy. Uh, and then there was this other guy who was friends with Chuck, and I, I feel like his his name was Steinhilber. I don't know if that was his last name, his first name, or or what the fuck it was. Uh, but I remember, you know, once someone said he was a Nazi, which, uh, you know, at age 13, I didn't even know what a Nazi was, you know, oh, he's German. Uh, but he was also, you know, he was this tall guy, he was real skinny, had these long arms, you know, with, you know, and he'd be blasting stuff like Ozzy, Van Halen, and Iron Maiden. Uh, he had a mullet, and he had his, he's the one responsible for me hearing early Judas Priest. Um... But I didn't know it till years later. Um, he also he had those like Jeffrey Dahmer glasses. <laughs> um, but "Screaming for Vengeance" was the Priest album uh, that I heard first, uh, and probably my point of entry. Even though I had my brother had British Steel and Point of Entry, and I liked uh, heading out to the highway and living after midnight, but hadn't really gotten to the other songs in those. And you know, which sounds ridiculous at this point when you think about you know British Steel. Uh, we got Screaming for Vengeance, and I instantly fell in, in love with that one and, you know, hung on with them for really just one more record, Defense of the Faith, uh, Defenders of the Faith, which I, you know, I, I like that record a lot. Uh, Turbo, a couple years later, though, was just a huge letdown, and I never, uh, you know, went more forward after that. And, you know, even before listening to this, I, I went back and listened to Turbo a little, and uh, it just didn't uh, hit me. Um... But, uh, so, I, I liked about half of uh, Point of Entry, and, you know, um, I warmed up to it more since, you know, uh, but I never went further backwards. Uh, oh, yeah, so Steinhilber. So, one day, summer of 1983, my friends and I are gathered at this uh, tennis court behind the high school next to Muskrat Pond with our skateboards and boombox probably playing uh, Signals by Rush and, you know, walk up walks uh, Steinhilber. And if you've, if you've seen the movie Do the Right Thing, remember the guy Radio Rahim? Well, that's pretty much Steinhilber, except white and skinny and, you know, blasting Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Uh, he came up to talk to one of the older kids that was there. And as he was walking away, uh, you know, he was kind of far away and he was playing something I never heard before. It was sort of this, you know, it was a live recording in this heavy uh, Sabbath-type riff, and then this high-pitched guy go, Whiskey woman, don't you? And, you know, kind of faded off. Um, and it was just far away enough that I didn't realize it was Rob Halford. Um, and it was probably the early 90s when I decided to dive back into the Priest catalog, starting with the that live record, Unleashed in the East, after hearing Diamonds and Rust on the radio. And this, so the second uh, Victim of Changes, which is the song I heard, started, I immediately knew it was that elusive song I had heard years before, coming from, you know, that alleged Nazi's boombox as he walked off into the, the sunset. Um, so, you know, 
was this my inadvertent point of entry to Judas Priest? Due to the, you know the Judas Priest I know and love today, that includes you know Stained Class, Sad Wings of Destiny, Hellbent for Leather, and all those records that are you know part of my vocabulary. Not really. It's most likely still just you know those two songs from the the living you know living after midnight and and uh, heading out to the highway and, and screaming for vengeance. Whatever it is, I I thought it was a good excuse to tell a story. And that's uh, what Bob and I get into here. He tells some great stories of hearing uh, Deep Purple for the first time, hearing Neon Nights for the first time, and not realizing it was a new lineup of Black Sabbath. Uh, You know, there's plenty of stories like that here, as well as, you know, what you're supposed to do when a band stops making music and, you know, starts reissuing records with, you know, tons of cool extras on them for you to mine more music from. Uh, and then I kind of connect Bob's, you know, lifetime as a, a fan of music and, you know, a collector of music uh, to his work he's been doing, with, you know, putting out the, uh, reissuing his band Wargasm's music. And uh, he's done a great job with those with, you know, cool liner notes and pictures and, you know, having those on uh, vinyl again is, is, is pretty cool. This, this, the two uh, full lengths are, are some of my favorite metal records of all time, so... Um, so if you, if you like, uh, what you hear here, you should definitely check out his here, here, uh, check out Bob's, uh, blog, Mayo Noise. Uh, I wouldn't try to Google that cause it's going to just keep looking up from a mayonnaise. Uh, but it's mayobat.wordpress.com or if you just Google Bob Mayo blog, you'll, you'll find it. I have faith in you. Um, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any new episodes. I'm also on social media on Facebook and Instagram, so just look up Talk About the Passion and follow me there. Okay, here we go with Point of Entry Part 1 with Bob Mayo. Thanks for listening. third time on and uh tonight we're not going to uh probe you for uh, your your history but both a little bit but we're, we're talking about this uh, concept point of entry which is the uh phenomena of you know being a fan of a band for 40 years 40 plus years and uh the first album you hear by an artist is you know does that orient your idea of what they should sound like where, where should we start? Well, I, I think a perfect example of that phenomena, uh, as we discussed last time, was in my experience was ACDC's Fly on the Wall. Yeah. Album. Oh, yeah, you had a friend that... Yeah, I have a friend who, uh, and it's probably the same for a lot of people, uh, they think that Fly on the Wall is ACDC's greatest album. And as far back as he goes with the band is back in black he thinks everything previous to back in black is loose you know punk rock garbage right um and you know it's really hard for me as a friend to listen to somebody (laughs) say things like that yeah yeah but but i get it i get it because he it was the first acdc album he ever heard right the first acdc album he ever bought and he saw the tour right so that that's 
at a certain point in your life, that's a really impactful event, series of events. And that can really solidify what that band is and what they're supposed to quote unquote sound like. Right. And unfortunately that's their worst record in, in <laughs> most yeah. people's opinion. Yeah. But, but it's interesting when, you know, where's, where's your entry point? Where, where's your point of entry into a band's catalog? Yeah. Um, and some people get into it, you know, now I think the first Black Sabbath album I heard was Master Reality, but I heard it in 1978. Right. So um, it completely floored me when I heard it, and I went right out and bought another one, and that was Never Say Die. Okay, yep, that had just come out. So, so I was like, is this even the same band? It, <laughs> it, it definitely didn't have the same impact on me that... that um, master reality had right and so it's it's interesting you kind of throw a dart against the wall and see you know where you land and then you can either go forward or backward or yeah or you're you're in a contemporary moment but it's interesting 40 years on for me it's even longer than that um looking back at, at all these careers that that we never even imagined would be Still. anywhere near this long lasting yeah it's yeah. it's incredible yeah all the albums and all the music and that that we have that we really never would have expected back then when we were kids yeah i guess i guess it's the stones fault because the stones <laughs> the stones just kept on rolling and yeah. never ended yeah and everybody kind of assumed back in the day that once you're past your 20s maybe into your 30s you're all done right but, but that's that's certainly not the case and, and thankfully so yeah yeah so what, one of the first bands for you was that you followed as like a big fan was was deep purple is that correct yes yeah yeah absolutely so what so what did you hear from them first was it one of those early those early ones like the first two no yeah no I, you know i think it's a it's a great question that to to make this point um the first deep purple album i ever heard um, besides you know the smoke on the water on the right. radio mm -hmm. was um a greatest hits album okay so on this album you know it starts off with hush yeah which i guess i knew from the am radio days um and then kentucky woman their cover of neil diamond's kentucky woman which you know wasn't my cup of tea right and then you get to um i think child in time was on it which is pretty mind-blowing. And then you get to the Mark II stuff, the smoke on the water and fireball and, right. and yeah. the, um, strange kind of woman and woman from Tokyo. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it was like, and then Stormbringer was on there and Burn oh, was on there. Nice. So it really did sound to me like three different bands yeah. on this album. Yeah, it is too. And and a case could be made that it was three different bands yeah. on, on the record, but but it was confusing. It was like I I really liked that middle period stuff on the album, but the stuff at the beginning wasn't really for me, and the stuff at the end was was okay, but it wasn't as cool as that. This you know that and that caused me to go research the band as as much as you could research anything back yeah. in the yeah. middle seventies. But yeah, it turns out that the Ian Gillen, Roger Glover 
uh, lineup of that band is, is the one, is the one that, yeah. on that record that really stood out. Um, but yeah, like a greatest hits record, uh, you know, there's so many different kinds of greatest hits records too. Right. It's just, is it just the singles or is it actual, <laughs> actual chart hits Right. or, or the difference between a greatest hits and a best of yeah. and who picks, who, who curates the best of. Yeah. Um, but that, that was, go ahead. No, I was going to say, was that the, uh, when we rock, we roll or the, the, the one with the spaceship? Yeah, Come, it yeah. was. Yeah, it was. And, and the first one I went out and I bought, um, instigated by that was machine head. So boom. Yeah. Oh, nice. And then after that, it was, um, made in Japan. So that's pretty much the, the be all yeah. and all of oh, their yeah. catalog there. Yeah. So, um, I think uh, it was a good, uh, it was a good exposure, but, but again, like I said, it was confusing because, um, three different singers, right just made it sound like three different bands and and the, each lineup had a very different approach too right um and now if you did another one of those now with deep purple with the steve morse <laughs> era yeah it would be just as confusing i guess because they really don't sound very much like they sounded back then but right um i think their recent records are still worthy yeah definitely um, but they definitely don't sound anything like they did with with blackmore Right. And also, you you get the reunion stuff too from like 80, 84, 85, 86. Oh yeah, yep. And um, that was pretty much, in my opinion, that was pretty much just Rainbow with Ian Gillen. Right. So that was kind of odd too. But yeah, yeah, that's that's what you get when you're around for fifty years as a band. <laughs> yeah. And is 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 that one of the first bands that you started doing that with? This? So then you would now you now you're buying this band's albums when they come out. Well, there was no Deep Purple when when I bought that album. Deep Purple did not exist. Okay. Oh, okay. They they broke up around when Tommy Bull and um that album Come Taste the Band when that came out. I think oh, it was seventy six or seventy six. Seventy five, seventy six. And yeah. uh, I bought When We Rock. I was in high school, so that was seventy eight to eighty, somewhere around seventy eight or seventy nine. Yeah, and then Perfect Strangers was until like eighty four. So yeah, I guess yeah. right. Um, so, so what bands then were you following, like as as stuff was coming out for for some of these sort of legacy bigger bands? Well, I pretty much started. I I bought singles and yeah. listened to the radio a lot in mm-hmm. like seventy six, seventy seven, but seventy eight is when I actually started to go buy albums. Right. And it was first it was Kiss, a couple of Kiss albums. Then it was Aerosmith, and Cheap Trick. Like those were the big three. Yeah. Um, and that was that was seventy eight. That was the year that every hard rock band on the planet put out a live album. Yeah. Yep. So that's another kind of a, a good point of entry um sub thread because when you first hear a band on their live record and you're really into it, and then you go by the studio one, sometimes that can be a letdown too. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I saw UFO before I'd heard them on the Obsession tour okay. after Schenker quit. Yep. 
they were opening up for a cheap trick. I saw them at the Orpheum. Oh, wow. And I had never heard a note from UFO, but right. they really blew me away. It was uh, Paul Chapman was on guitar, but they were awesome. Nice. And I went out and I bought the next time they put a record out, it was Strangers in the Night, the live album. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it was Schenker. Yep. Um, but I was like completely blown away by that album. So I went and I bought everything I could find, and none of it really measured up. Yeah. Um, at the time, anyway, I've come to appreciate all this stuff, but yeah, yeah, very much so. But at the time, it was kind of a letdown because those those live albums are a different animal than the studio stuff from the seventies for yeah. sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Priest was one of the ones we 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 talked about. Uh, Unleashed in the East. Yeah, so. that's. That's maybe even a better example because Unleashed in the East is is like so amazingly heavy. Right. And then you go back and you buy, um, you know, the source material for that live album. Yeah. A lot of it came from Sad Wings of Destiny. Yeah. And I I did not buy Sad Wings of Destiny for years and years and years because I thought it was just a lame, weak album. Right. And that, and trust me, I know how that sounds. <laughs> I know right? coming out of my mouth right now. It's ridiculous, <laughs> but but that's how I felt when I was fourteen, yeah, fifteen, yeah. sixteen years old. I was like, this live album just kicks ass, and then this album's just a little too. Everything's slower, and right. everything's a little more sedate, and it just didn't have that same impact. And that's because I was imprinted basically by that that live album, and yeah. anything else was going to be a letdown, right? Um, but I, I definitely climbed on board with them at the live album point. And the next album was British Steel, which was awesome. Yeah. Yep. But, and gradually, you know, I moved forward with the band and it took me a while to start creeping backwards and picking up the, the earlier stuff. Yeah. And they, and they have a, 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 like a sort of an up and down catalog too, with, you know, as, as we'll, we'll talk about and find out with a lot of bands, you know, especially that have, you know, 20, records you know there's there's definitely a, a lot of uh trends that they get followed or just them finding their sound before you know like especially before these live records like like the scorpions same there you know that live record uh the tokyo tapes is another one you know you, you listen to that and then go back and listen to you know fly to the rainbow or no what is it is it fly to the rainbow yeah yeah yeah, no, that's yeah. another good point. Um, if you got on board with Tokyo Tapes and you move forward, yeah, you have those really kick-ass uh, Love Drive, Blackout, Animal Magnetism. Yeah. But if you go backwards, you get the Uli Roth, really Hendrixy stuff. Yeah. So it, it was weird. Like I, I bought all these live albums by all these mega bands back then. Yeah. And... You know, that year I would go back and dive into the back catalogs and, and was disappointed a lot. Yeah. But moving forward, uh, it was fine. Yeah. But uh, I I remember um, uh, Cheap Trick was one of the bands that when I, I went back and bought the first three and I loved all three of them. Yeah. So that was a win. That Yeah. But moving forward with them was just the opposite. Moving forward was a lot of... Um, every album had a different producer and every record sounded different. And right. 
it, the some of these records were the producers' records and really not the bands. Right. And uh, that that was kind of disappointing. But... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They would they would become almost like a fifth member of the band that kind of took over, though. You know, and with Cheap Trick, I don't think that band really had like egos in it. So having like a didn't they work with George Martin on on one of the records? Yeah, the the songs are there on each record, but you got um, you got George Martin. Yeah, you, you got Todd Rundgren. You got Roy Thomas Baker, like all in a row, like one, two, three. <laughs> That's crazy, right? And yeah, and and each one is the same band and the same songwriters, but each one it's they just sound so different. It right. was like, and and they even the third one in a row where they were ch- changing producers was called Next Position, Please. And the, oh, joke, yeah. Yeah. And the joke in the band was Next Producer, Please. <laughs> yep. <clears throat> and and that, that seemed to be, a, you know, going sort of going back to these other bands, like the, uh, especially like Kiss and Rush were bands that would put out a live, put out three records and then a live record, three records. It was almost like a cycle, you know. Yeah, it was a pattern that they all followed, I guess, after three touring cycles they just needed a break so and then and the other thing i noticed too when i was a kid was when they came back from the break they they had really kind of changed course a little bit yeah if you look at the the arcs of their catalogs Mm -hmm. there's a there's a little bit of a left turn after each one of the live albums yeah 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 definitely yeah especially uh rush you know the, the next one after uh Exit stage left as signals. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I was thinking of too. Yeah, and I think that, that one. And I was thinking about that one because when we talked about this last time, I think you were saying you you didn't like that record at all. No, I yeah. I worked really hard on liking that record, and I I failed. Yeah. I just <laughs> and I was trying to, and I was thinking about it, and I was wondering because at that time, you know, I think that one came out in late '82, or I, I at least saw him in late '82, I think. And, December at uh, with Rory Gallagher at the Garden, and uh, yeah, I was there. Yeah, and at that time I was listening to, you know, heavy metal rock, but also stuff like uh, Blondie and the Talking Heads and the Police and, and a lot of new wave and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I wonder if you know we're we're I think five five years apart. I'm fifty two. <clears throat> um. So I think, you know, age and just, you know, where we've gone into stuff, which is sort of the whole point of this conversation, plays a big part of that. Because the first record I heard by Rush was Exit Stage Left, and I didn't go back. You know, I had heard the studio versions of Tom Sawyer and that kind of thing, but uh, I didn't start buying their records until Signals, and I loved it. And I think the lyrics spoke to me, and I think, you know, the synthesizers on there didn't bother me and I and when I kind of look back at it now they're 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 kind of real dark they they kind of bring like a darkness it's it, it wasn't doing what like a lot of that new wave stuff was doing which just made stuff corny you know like the when Judas Priest put the <laughs> the keyboard yeah. the synthesizers and it was it was a, a different beast so yeah I, I think my problem with that era of Rush was that if you get on board like with 2112 yeah and then you ha- after that you have farewell to kings and then hemispheres and yeah. then permanent waves and moving pictures that's rush yeah and then but if you get on board with with signals 
you're you're a fan of a different band yeah yeah definitely and it's it's just as valid but it's it's was just a, a couple of miles too far away from my idea of what they were it just didn't sound right to me it sounded like they were like they were making music for other people and and there you were you you were you're a part of that other people and that's fine they they, they successfully uh, evolved and still had an audience waiting for it yeah but i still don't even own those synth albums i just yeah. can't i just can't <laughs> yeah. I can't listen to them yeah and each one that came out i was like it went even further down that rabbit hole yeah was, yeah just kind of waved goodbye to them until um i think the first one that got me back on board was counterparts yeah that's that's a great record yeah yeah, they they get they definitely for for me, they they definitely get pretty spotty, <clears throat> and uh, they're one of those bands. You know, I I always buy their records, but uh, but that counterparts is probably the one post you know synth era uh, one that I I pull out quite a bit. You know, but a lot of those other ones I I, I don't really uh, play along with. And they and then they did one of their called Snakes and Arrows that I thought they thought was pretty good sort of later 2004 something like that yeah they're they're a good enough band um i think they could probably pull off anything they attempted it's just a question of whether you're interested in it as a music listener or not i have a ton of respect for them right yeah and you have to evolve yeah unless you're acdc or the ramones or that small handful of bands that, yeah. that can do one thing for 50 years and they do it so well yeah but that's not rush that's that's the opposite of rush yeah yeah definitely in going to see you know going to see bands live in that era too and then going you know you might see like you said you saw ufo before hearing them right and then getting the 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 live record after that's that's a lot of times people go you know they'll go see a band that they they end up liking but then they'll go back and hear like a studio record or something you know so yeah yeah I, i'm trying to think of an example if that ever happened to me where i saw a band that i really dug live and then went and bought the record and didn't like it i can't i can't i, I enjoyed uh i saw nantucket open up for ted nugent yeah way back when mm-hmm. at the Cape Cod Coliseum and, and they put on a great show. They had like a short 30 minute set. They rocked the house. They, they really uh, had the crowd in their pocket. But yeah. I went back and bought their current record and it was very pedestrian, very FM radio, good time rock and roll. And I, I just didn't, didn't dig it. Yeah. <clears throat> and then some of the bigger bands never, like Van Halen never had a, a proper live record. And they've, you know, there's live stuff that, you know, floats around to the internet and on, on YouTube. But, uh, you know, Sabbath had that uh, sort of unofficial Live at Last, which was, uh, I, I liked. And later on, I've you know, that's that's one of the things we were kind of going to get into after is, you know, mining the, 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 the stuff that you might have skipped and you go back and listen to. But that's when I... Uh, I bought that CD five years ago or something, and I kind of got back into the. You know, the it's just like a weird live record, but uh, yeah, a lot yeah, of these bands. It's, did it's one of those records that 
like somebody was rolling tape, but maybe it wasn't the best night to do that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Ozzy sounds uh, wasted. The, you know, the whole time. And... Or maybe it's one of those live albums that they didn't have the opportunity to go in and fix. Yeah. 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 So a lot of the a lot of these live records, you know, are are fixed. Like the you know, of course, Kiss Alive famously is is not all live. In, uh... no, I I think that they're pretty much all. The only one I can tell you uh, that I'm aware of that's not touched mm-hmm. at all is Made in Japan. And the reason that I can say that with some degree of certainty is because I have an audience tape from one of the two Osaka shows. Okay. And it's it sounds like shit, but yeah. it's it's clear enough to hear that nothing was done to it at all nothing was changed nothing was added nothing right. was fixed so you can assume that the the other the second osaka show and the and the tokyo show were probably untouched as well and you know that's that's probably the one band that didn't need any fixing you know that those guys just are so amazing right and especially at that point that they were at their peak at that you know, that one Oh yeah, that one that one week. Yeah, in in August of seventy two. Right, they were just smoking, and um, but everything else is, is. I think another thing, another benefit of these bands lasting forty and fifty years, where I think they get to the point where they don't care anymore about telling the lies about their live albums. Right. Yeah, and I they're know. just saying, yeah, okay, because Eddie Kramer is on uh, VH1 documentaries every other week, saying, oh yeah, we we fixed that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. so why why keep the ruse alive at this point? It's just it's kind of pointless. I know. Yeah. Even Glenn Tipton has said that they redid Halford's vocals. They fixed a ton of Halford's vocals on. On um, unleashed in the east. And, yeah. And another one that's a big disappointment was Thin Lizzy's "Live and Dangerous." Some yeah. of that is some of that is um, sound checks. Oh, is it really? Oh, I didn't know. And that. they used the the audience from David Bowie's. Um, <laughs> what was his first live album called? Stage. Stage stages or yes. Yeah, stage. yeah. yeah. They used the audience noise from that album. Huh to put over the um, the sound check. So, wow. yeah, I mean, I think the albums are, are what they are. You know, if they were great when you thought they were really live, right. whatever, they're still great recordings. They're yeah. still great records. But, right. And you have the nostalgia factor and the, the emotional connection too. But, yeah, it was a disappointment. Um, even uh, Strangers in the Night, UFO, one whole side of that record was recorded live in the studio. And uh, they kind of acknowledged that in a really cool way. I think last year or the year before for Record Store Day, they put those two songs out without the fake audience noise. Oh, the 10-inch, right? Is that the... Yeah, yeah. on a 10-inch yeah. vinyl record. So that was pretty cool of them yeah. to do that. That's yeah. like, you know you know what? You you, you busted us. Everybody knows. <laughs> right. here, here you go. <laughs> I ha- I bought that. I didn't realize that that's what, that's what that is. Interesting. And it's and, and I was thinking too about the live records with like hard rock bands and metal bands. Um, you know, almost you kind of have to, especially ha- have to overdub stuff, especially with like a band like Kiss, where they're running around the stage. Uh, Rob Halford, you know, did a lot of moving around the stage, and he, you know, 
his voice is uh, <clears throat> pretty impeccable on you know on the records. Uh, but then when you listen to you know bands like in the early '70s and late '60s, where you know like Hendrix and Cream and stuff like that, I feel like they were putting out just as is live records, you know, and without with sort of the warts and all a lot of times. Yeah, I think there's value to both of them. I think that, yeah. you know, all that stuff that came out at the end of the 70s, those oh. live records, because of of where they landed in your life, you, you wouldn't want to change any of them. You, 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 but, but I like the ones that aren't doctored up. And, and like, I don't know if you were planning on getting on, into this later, but the um, the multiple CD box set of Motorhead's No Sleep Till Hammersmith that oh, just yeah. came in. Yep. So a lot of that stuff, they were not able to mix. Right. So, you know, that was that was a couple of week tour in Britain mm-hmm. in 1981, I think, 1980 or 81. Um and they recorded five or six shows in their entirety. Right. And of course they picked the best versions of the songs and, and then they went in and they did a little bit of fixing and they definitely mixed it and mastered it. Yeah. But the box set that just came out has all of the shows in their entirety. Oh wow. The, the entire sets. Yeah. But, but without the opportunity to mix, I'm not sure if they were recorded straight to two track or what, but right. they couldn't remix them. Hmm. so you get to hear the before and the after basically yeah yeah nice. you get to hear what went right on tape and couldn't couldn't right. be altered and then you hear the the one that you know the final polished product and yeah. it's kind of interesting nice yeah I, li- I like hearing that kind of stuff and we we talked before about the uh the ufo one that came out recently that has uh all the nights where they recorded uh the strangers in the night and the, yeah, that are, that's great. Yeah, it's it's a great listen. It's like it's like being on the road for a week with UFO. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, it's like being and with a sound guy for a week. There's a couple of songs on there that um, they played during their sets, but didn't make the album. So that's kind of interesting too. Yeah. But then the flip side of all this is that you get to hear why they never made the record yeah. because yeah, exactly, yeah, because you know there's a broken string or a a drop drumstick or you know somebody's voice cracks right and and you can just see the engineer going nope we're not going to use that one <laughs> yeah exactly but but yeah in 40 years you will yeah i know <laughs> because the when they run out of of gas with the catalog they they're digging up stuff that never never would have been commercially viable 40 yeah. years ago but i know it's such a niche market now for collectors and and people people our age that are you know, there's less and less of this music being made and, and less and less being released every year that that people who are buying this this boutique stuff, you know, they'll buy anything. And oh, I'm yeah. one of them. I'm yeah. definitely one of them. Yeah, same here. I, I remember seeing, you know, jazz box sets, you know, it'd be like a Charlie Parker box set and it'd literally be one, you know, disc seven is just literally all this, you know, one song with like 13 <laughs> takes of it. And I remember thinking like, who would ever want to listen to that? And then, you know, if you put that out of, you know, 16 takes of, uh, you know, California Man by Cheap Trick, I'd be like, I, I want to hear that. <laughs> yeah, the, they just re-released uh, a big, it's a beautiful box set of um, Rory Gallagher's first solo album. Yeah. 
and its 50th anniversary. And the, the packaging is is amazing. I mean, I would have bought it just for this, just because of the the physical thing is just amazing. But it literally has one whole disc that is different takes of one song. And that's that's cool. Like in the right in the right setting, you know, I'm out raking my yard, maybe I got the earbuds <laughs> yeah. on, or I'm on a long trip, I'm driving for an hour and a half. I'll put that on. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll listen to each one, and and it's kind of interesting. Why why didn't they use this one, or or, or why did they stop in the middle here? Yeah. It, it, I think that's pretty cool. But you know, are you going to release that as a as uh, uh, we the market for that has got to be super tiny? Yeah, and I and I think too as like you as a musician who's recorded and me, you know, that kind of stuff interests me because they're like being a fly on the wall in a studio and i remember doing that you know doing multiple takes of songs and uh so it's kind of it's kind of cool to hear yeah the uh maybe 10 15 years ago um roger glover remixed mm -hmm. deep purples all the deep purple albums that he was on yeah and he left a lot of the studio chatter back and forth yeah i like that's the stuff i like it's really cool. You can hear Martin Birch talking to the band and you can hear, you know, somebody speaking into the, yeah, the overheads and, and it's kind of cool. And, um, it's like, you're there. It's, it's really cool. Yeah. Like and it's not, it's not music at that point. It's like a historical document. Oh yeah. 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 The nineties was big for reissues. I remember like, uh, I remember they remember they redid all the, uh, I think it was in the '90s, all the Maiden ones, and they had a. I think it was Castle did them. They had like a second disc that had all the B sides. And you can't find those anywhere nowadays. Uh, but uh, but now now in the last ten years, reissues are like the the ones that sat. They've been doing for Sabbath uh, have been great. Uh, I don't know if you're a Jethro Tull fan, but they, they've, they've been doing their theirs almost similar. Like in these, it looks like a you know a book almost. Yeah, it's amazing yeah. what they're coming up with from those guys. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely. Yeah, I can't. I can't tell you how many uh, times I've bought Iron Maiden's like first six albums. <laughs> I know, right? It's, I bought them all on vinyl. Yeah. Then I bought them all on CD, and then you got to buy the remasters, and then you got to buy the double disc sets. And I, I actually know a guy who he's a Maiden collector, and you know th they know that these collectors are out there, and they. They just keep putting them out in in uh, cardboard, mini cardboard album sleeves, and no, they know that people are going to buy every one of them. Yeah, I know. I bought the. They've been releasing them with little uh, figurines, so I've been buying those just for the figurines. And then I, you know, I've been selling the CDs on discards because I'm like, I don't need a sealed copy of uh, Fear of the Dark. I don't even like that record, but I, I wanted the little figurine for twelve dollars. <laughs> so now I have. Eddie figurines all over my. Uh, no, so. they're a they're a good uh, um, illustration, I think, of a band that has been around for a long, long time. Their catalog is huge, but they still sound like Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah. Like it or not, um, yeah. I mean, I know a lot of people have a problem with the lengths of the songs. Yeah, but, yeah. But they they still have enough of that core sound where. It's. I still enjoy it. Oh yeah, yeah. That, so, 
one of the things we, we were going to talk about was the, you know, when there's a significant lineup change in a band that, you know, might cause uh, some fans to, to stop uh, following them. And Maiden was one of those. They did the, the two records with a different singer. Uh, Priest, yeah. you know, did that. And I don't think I've ever even heard. I, I've heard a few songs off of each of those, but I never, uh, you know. And those are the two main ones that are, it's funny that they're still going pretty strong now with their you know well not bruce bruce isn't the original singer but you know with their longtime vocalists whereas like someone like uh sabbath had multiple uh you know singers throughout the years and some people think some of those records shouldn't even be called the uh, black sabbath records the, the 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 ones that came after the the gillen one you know yeah well there's people who feel that the gillen one shouldn't be called black sabbath <laughs> yeah yeah. Now, so that was a band you were following when uh, Dio joined the band. Yeah. And uh, yeah, th- that, that was a, that was an amazing, amazing pairing. Yeah. Uh, and it it really really worked. But um, I think you told me a story about you heard that live. You were at another concert and they were playing it over the PA before they the they came out and you heard something off uh, Heaven and Hell. Yeah, I I knew that. Um, well, I think the Blizzard of Oz album came out first, right? And I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. And um, we were all everybody was waiting to see what Sabbath was going to do. Right. And for your listeners out there who aren't in their fifties, <laughs> back then, and you know 79 80 there was no internet yeah and the only way we could find out anything about bands was to go to a bookstore yeah. or a drugstore and look through magazines yeah circus cream hit parader and they only came out once a month so yeah. information was was really tough to come by um so I'm at, I want to say I'm at the Cape Cod Coliseum. I forget who I was seeing. It might have been Van Halen, Women and Children First. Yep. And before before the band came on, they're playing over the PA, they're playing a bunch of tunes. And um, one of them just came roaring out of the PA. It was, sounded so cool. And as soon as the singer opened his mouth, I go, that's the singer from Rainbow, but this is not Rainbow. Right what what the hell is this it sounds amazing and i heard the whole it was neon nights oh wow and it was just incredible yeah. and i was just on fire for the rest of that night trying to figure out who who does ronnie dio quit rainbow <laughs> right or is this before <clears throat> rainbow well, what is this yeah and it took, it took a little while i i probably went to high school the next day and asked some of the other metalheads there what was up with it and and Somebody there who's smarter than me probably told me what it was, but right. But yeah, that's a home run, absolute home run. And the, and in Black Sabbath too, at that point, you know, the last two records before that are Technical Ecstasy and uh, Never Say Die. So to to hear how the songwriting just uh, on on you know those two records is like so like whatever. Tony Iommi and, and Geezer were, you know, doing with their lives at that point. Uh, you know, maybe it was just having someone, you know, as talented as uh, Dio in the band, you know, gave them sort of this uh, kick in the ass, especially, you know, opening their record with the uh, Neon Knights. 
you know. Well, I think too. They, I think, I think a, they probably felt we can get on the radio with this guy. Yeah, yeah. we actually have a chance. And but also, what was happening in England, it, it took, uh, it took another year or so before it started to hit in the U.S. But the new wave of British heavy metal, by the time he- Heaven and Hell came out in 1980. The new wave of British heavy metal had already been underway for over a year at that point. So a lot of the older bands like UFO, um, definitely, definitely Sabbath, um, they kind of rode that wave and they, they it revitalized them. They, they got back to being heavy and uh, all of a sudden they had a ton of competition from bands half their age. So there's a lot of... Um, a lot of the older bands really got their acts together in, in 1980. If you look at a list of what records came out in 1980, it's pretty freaking amazing. Yeah. That year was just incredible. Right. Yeah, is that uh, the, the Maiden? The, was it the first Maiden record in 80? First Maiden album, first Def Leppard album. Um, Ace of Spades came out. Yeah. Women and Children First. Um, I think Except Breaker came out that year. It's just an unbelievable year. Yeah. And uh, and the, yeah, I, I saw today the the Mob Rules came out forty years ago today. So that's uh, oh my god. <laughs> it's officially as old as uh, uh, it's, yeah, it's like a middle aged uh, man now. <clears throat> I mean, it's really it, it's incredible that that. These guys are still alive, never mind. Yeah. Still making music. It's I know. Yeah. Really incredible. Yeah. Now, what did you think of. So, so now, so they put the, those two records out, and now Sabbath puts out an official live album, and they actually include some of the songs, uh, you know, they, the Aussie songs. What did you think of that when you heard that, that, that record? I, I, I didn't like it. Yeah. I, I I had this weird thing when I was a kid where I just thought they should change their name. Yeah. And even with Born Again, I thought they should change their name. I just, it just didn't sound like Sabbath enough yeah. to for that brand name, you know. And I saw I saw them with Gillen at um, Providence Civic Center. Yeah. And it was awesome. And I'm a huge Gillen fan. Yeah. Just about everything he's ever done. And I really like Born Again too, but is that Black Sabbath? I don't know. Yeah. It, it gets it gets really weird with that band because then you get Heaven and Hell, yeah. the band, yeah. And Heaven and Hell is just it's it's the Mob Rules Black Sabbath, but Sharon Osbourne won't let him use the name. <laughs> I know. And Born Again was not supposed to be a Black Sabbath album originally. It was supposed to be like this one-off side project thing. Yeah. But Warner Brothers said, no, if we're going to put it out, it's going to be under Black Sabbath. Yeah. Same with um, Tony's solo album, Seventh Star. It was supposed to be a solo album. Yeah. but So it's just that's where you get, you know, the business commercial considerations involved. Yeah. And, right. and it gets weird. Yeah. And and then, yeah, then some of those bands start getting commercial around that time as, you know, MTV starts to become influential so bands like the scorpions and def leppard start showing up there and uh you know some might think that's a a a bad thing for uh hard rock and uh it was awful we 
we we lost so many great bands to to MTV. Just the, the year before, the two years before MTV, um, Crocus was awesome. Def Leppard were great. Um, Judas Priest got sucked into it. There's so much, so many bands just really let me down. Um, I t- I take that kind of stuff personally too. Yeah. I, I I get really pissed when <laughs> because I love it so much that if you take it away, it's like you know. Okay, fine. Be that way. <laughs> you you you'd rather make money for the casual lowest common denominator fan than cater to me yeah. that you that, that would live and die for you, you know. Yeah. That's a, that's just how I was. I I was offended and and insulted when yeah. uh, like when Turbo that album. Oh yeah. And even um the other big one for me that there's two other really big ones for me that pissed me off was yeah. um motorhead's march or die oh yeah that had like an acoustic guitar on it, it it's Maybe. just it's a crappy la yeah. hard rock record and it just sucks and yeah. i was really let down by that and also um metallica's black album yeah they this grunge is like right around the corner and it's it's about to take over the world and and steal all the metal fans and Metallica was a big enough and, and an influential enough band to have maybe fought against that, but they didn't. Instead, they decided to make their big power move and become mainstream. And, and I think it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they were already, they were already playing arenas and stadiums at that point. They could have put out another, uh, you know, another uh, injustice for all. There's there's another band in terms of um, point of entry, right? Yeah. So my point of entry for Metallica was seeing them at the Rat yeah. open up for Raven. And uh, that was pretty much the first time I'd ever heard them. And I was blown away, obviously. Um, they were just like, fuck you. You know, we don't give a fuck about anything. They just musically and their attitudes on stage and and the music was awesome it was like next next level heavy um but to put out i don't know how many studio albums i've never taken the time to sit down and count them all but how long have they been around like 82 83 and they have like do they even have 10 studio records maybe yeah i know right that's kind of irresponsible, don't you think? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, bands like uh, at one point, bands were, you know, remember Kiss was, you know, putting on a like some some years they put two records out, you know, or they would at least be putting something out, whether it was a a greatest hits no, thing or you know, they did I, they did the I think the second and third albums came out in the same year. Yeah, yeah, they did. And if you look at a band that's been around for you know almost as long as metallica in the same genre like overkill yeah yeah overkill's got like 25 records i know i mean you, you, when you're not a multi-millionaire i guess you have to try harder but i don't believe that i think that metallica earned their status with their first three records no question about it yeah but they haven't done in my in this fan's opinion they haven't done enough to sustain that that legendary status since then 
Yeah, I don't own anything after Master Puppets. No, wow. They don't have. Uh, yeah, I'm looking right now. They have exactly ten, ten records. The last one was 2016, and that was that hardwired to self-destruct. Um, and that was, you know, I, I remember hearing the Death Magnetic one and thinking it was, you know, pretty good. Uh, but it was another one of those. Like a lot, a lot of times, like today, they re, uh, did you hear the, that Scorpion song that came out today? I listened to it a few yeah. times. It's, it's good. I, I, I thought it was good, and I, and I, and I want you know. And then I was asking myself, so does this sound good? Because, you know, I love the Scorpions, and they did so much, you know, stuff that I just was not into in the '80s. So I really kind of am giving them sort of a pass, you know, or. Is it actually good? <laughs> you know, and it, but it's, I think it is a hard. good song. Yeah, it's, a, it's hard. It's hard to know because yeah. this, like I said before, there's so little of this stuff that's coming out. And when these guys are gone, there's no not going to be anybody else to take their place. Yeah, there really isn't. It's going to be just done. And two guys in the Scorpions are 74 years old. <laughs> that's crazy. Huh? So, I mean, how long can we reasonably expect to get new music from these people? I bought um, I bought the new Accept album earlier this year. Um, it sounds so much like Accept. It's it's ridiculous, but it's amazing. So I went back and I bought the previous like I think four or five with this new singer Mark Tonio, and I'm just completely blown away. It, it's it's the same record five times. Right. I'm not going to deny that, but it's great <laughs> because it's exactly what it's supposed to be. Just like ACDC, like I I said this on, during our previous chat, I don't even care if it's a good record or if this song is a good song. Who cares? Like if it sounds like ACDC, it's going to be good. I think there's just part of my brain that turns off you know that the quantitative judgment right. piece. Yeah, of course. Yeah, especially like, with ACDC. You know. Yeah, you it's know. just I just want to hear them play. Yeah, yeah. I just want to hear that combination of 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 sounds. That's just all I need. I don't need. If you write two hundred and fifty songs, can we really expect the last fifty <laughs> to be right? stellar groundbreaking heartbreaking works of staggering genius i don't think so i think that the best we can expect is that they can fill up 40 minutes with sound yeah yeah and i'll buy it i'll yeah. buy it now on the other side of that a band like maiden though they they definitely challenge you you know with uh i mean that they've kind of settled into this groove of you know, I, I put a thing up on Facebook a, a few months ago. Where I, I went and looked at all the times the the, the, the of each Iron Maiden record, and they kind of got significantly longer until the, you know, I think that last one's like 83 minutes or something like that. And uh, I, I wrote a, a blog about that. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a two-part blog, but it's about how, each album gets longer and longer and longer and what the longest song used to be and what it is today. Like the song lengths just go crazy. Yeah. And you can hear it on the new one. As much as I like the new one, mm -hmm. you can hear what pieces easily could have been chopped. chopped yeah. Off. Yeah, definitely. 
easily it, the, the intros you know you only need one of those slow quiet somber sounding intros right. per record and in the and then they they end the song where it should end and then they reprise the intro <laughs> right and then and then they put another little piece at the end of that it's like come on and then there's one song there's one song that has the sound of like ocean waves and seagulls oh, for yeah. 20 seconds. Yeah. Just, just come on, come on. <laughs> I know, right? I, uh... It's almost like he's taunting us. Right. Steve is right. taunting us all. <laughs> yeah. I did, I, I did like that new one and I, and I ended up buying it. At, uh, and I love the, 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 the first song on that it took me a, a few likes, a few listens. And I, it's one of my favorite ones on there. Just, just for one of the, the, things is just neat the the beat uh nico plays and that is completely something i've never really heard him play a, a, a rhythm like that before so it was interesting to hear he's i think he's the star of the of the album he's yeah. awesome yeah yeah definitely he's another one i just i don't really care if the song is fantastic i just want to hear him play yeah i know yeah he's uh He's definitely one of the my favorites of, of all these bands, you know. And when Maiden Maiden's another good point of entry example because, again, I know somebody who, I, probably the vast majority of Maiden fans got into Maiden at Number of the Beast. Yeah, that's right. At, at least yeah, the the ones that are in, in in their 40s and 50s probably heard that album first. Yeah, that's how that's. What and I'm then thinking. I I know of people who don't like the first album and Killers because that Paul Diano guy, he's not a good singer. He's like a punk rock dude just right. because of his look, I guess. But to write those two albums off is just insanity. And the the thing that unfortunately Maiden lost along the way, I think, is that punk energy that they had at the beginning. They Steve Harris has said a million times in interviews that he hated punk rock. Yeah. But they were punk rock. They yeah, they had that energy and that fire and that in your face. Just the, and especially him with this DIY thing from day one. That's that's punk rock. That's um that the riffs just you know the songs would just start with the riff and bang and zoom and, and boom. It was right there, very immediate and and, and uh, aggressive. And now, the the prog thing has kind of taken over a lot, and it, it seems like the aesthetic is the longer, the better, and the more nuanced and textured, the better. And you know, you get both sides of the coin. But if you put on, to, to me, Killers is the best example of what they lost because that album is just bang 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 and it still has the twin guitars and it still has some elaborate arrangements it still has an instrumental it still has a lot of that those prog tendencies but they're they're really tight and and reined in and explosive and um i guess i guess they you know you have to kind of adjust it for age the age of the players and the real surprise there for me was Judas Priest, yeah, Firepower. Oh yeah, because I think that's another case of they, of Andy Sneap, mm -hmm. the producer, yeah, um, 
he he produced all the those accept albums i was just raving about he he helped them find their mojo you know he he helped them he helped them find their way back to what made accept accept right this is a younger guy the yeah 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 and he he um he did the same thing with priest he the last couple of priest albums were lame like mm. super lame yeah. and he he got them you know he kicked them in the ass and reminded them of of why they are regarded as what they are and, yeah. and how they, it really it's a real aggressive album and it and yeah. it fits it fits them really well yeah that's cool I, that's good for like i have to have a producer doing that for uh bands sort of like uh you know rick rubin did with uh slayer <laughs> slayer you know, yeah band. yeah i i unfortunately i think rick rubin's kind of a illusion he's yeah. kind of yeah like he 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 did it for slayer for sure right um but he failed on at every other thing he's done with a metal band in my opinion he, he okay the cult yeah it's he just turned him into acdc yeah no i know he took away the uh yeah, for, for them it's funny i always say he pretty much just took away the reverb so that made them sound like acdc you know sort of yeah. uh, the opposite of what uh i feel like mutt lang did that with with them when with back in black it has more of like a you know where those the the malcolm the the uh bon scott records are right in your face and that one's more of like a it's got that huge echoey sound you know <clears throat> yeah it sounds it sounds a lot more like the Vanda and Young produced ACDC albums sound like they just set up in a room with a microphone and they just yeah played yeah yeah and then and in many cases that's exactly what happened and Mutt Lang the records sound a lot more planned out a lot more deliberate right. yeah and he actually got them to tune their guitars right yeah yeah and and that you know what that took something away yeah 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 definitely it really did yeah it took away a lot of that raw you know and I I like those first now. Uh, few acdc records with brian johnson yeah i do too i yeah. do for sure that the um flick of the switch yeah. um for those about to rock and back in rock. black yeah yeah those those three are great after that it gets a little weird and then back to rick rubin he he he's always the guy that is gonna remind us of where we're from and yeah, yeah, yeah bring us back to our roots but ball breaker kind of sucks yeah yeah i, I never got into that one and he did which Metallica album did he do? Oh, uh, did he do that hard? The he might have no, he didn't do Saint Anger. He might have did that uh, Death Magnetic. Yeah, yeah, Death Magnetic. I, I, yeah, yeah. That one's okay, I guess. But the the real one that uh, that illustrates that he's really brings nothing to the table is Thirteen by Black Sabbath. Oh yeah, yeah, that that yeah. It's uh, and and uh, laugh. Futura from ZZ Top is awful too. And oh yeah, I'm a huge fan of the last late period ZZ Top. It's it's strange yeah. stuff com compared to the '70s stuff. Right. But I really like it. Yeah. And I was looking forward to this album with Rick Rubin, but yeah. uh, it's just lame. It he what he does based on the ZZ Top and the Black Sabbath. What he does is he goes back and has the the band listen to their early albums. Right. And I think I even read that in an interview mm -hmm. somewhere where that's that was his process. Huh. 
he brings him back to you know remember when you were young and hungry and yeah, this yeah. is how you this is how you wrote this is how you felt yeah but then what you come up with is song by song you can point to where these songs came from like right. i don't know the titles but on uh, 13 there's a planet caravan song oh there's, yeah yeah yep. there's this song and that song like yeah it's it's so transparent that he and there's a, t- a touch song on the ZZ Top album. It's it's touched with different lyrics, huh. and, and it's just yeah. it's a waste. It's a waste of time. I'd rather hear something like Deep Purple, where they don't try. They're they're miles and miles away from where they were in '72. Right. They're never gonna sound like that. Yeah. So they don't even try, because it would just sound it would be awful. Yeah. So they just do what they do now, and they're good enough that it works. Yeah. yeah. And I wish I'd, I'd really I'd rather hear like an honest, authentic um, Sabbath album yeah. than than a retread. That's just what is what do people want to hear from us? Right. That's a losing game. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know, it's not real. Yeah. Now, with bands that you know have gone through changes in their sounds, you know bands like Aerosmith, you know, made a huge change in their sound and just kind of was made no uh, bones about, you know, what they were trying to do, bringing in all sorts of outside songwriters and having all those power ballads. And that was sort of the age of, you know, bands like Motley Crue and that kind of stuff. And that was sort of like an ugly, <laughs> an ugly period for uh, hard rock and metal, I think. And it brought yeah. in, you know, made it harder to you know see some of these bands and you know just brought a lot of uh like we were talking about with mtv you know did to to a lot of this stuff yeah it's uh aerosmith's a a special band for me because when i was 14 15 and uh, my sister had the rocks album yeah i i thought that i thought that album was so like adult so scary and so dangerous and i loved it it yeah. had this i was really compelled to yeah. listen to it you know as a kid and when i found out that they were from our area they were actually from <clears throat> around here yeah i was like stunned like you mean rock stars They're, these guys are on the radio <laughs> you know rock stars don't come from some secret island somewhere they don't come from another planet they're actually they, they come from walpole i know i remember thinking every band was from england you know like yeah yeah, yeah so so that was like i worshiped those guys um yeah. they were they were heroes of mine especially when i started to play myself um and i'm self-taught i i learned a, from playing along with their records you know that was one of the go-to bands for me to learn how to play and Oh, I wasn't old enough at the time, but they played. They played either Providence Civic Center or, or probably the Garden. And a lot of um, my sister and a lot of her friends went to see them, and I just so was so jealous that they went to actually go stand in the same room as this band. But and, and there was a certain degree of pride, and uh, when they when they managed to reinvent themselves and become the biggest rock band on the planet. But also disappointment because they weren't records that I was going to buy. Yeah, yeah. 
I'm glad that they survived and I kind of felt vindicated like, Oh, did you see my favorite band is now the, the biggest band on earth. Right. But their records are terrible. I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and those people aren't going, but you know, someone's not going to, isn't, isn't hearing, uh, you know, amazing on the radio and then going to see them at, uh, well, maybe it was probably Sullivan Stadium at the time, or in you know a football stadium, and then going back and buying Draw the Line. You know they're gonna, <clears throat> you know may, maybe they will. You know that's the, the best we can hope for. But I, I think that, you know it just turned a lot of those kind of bands into uh, just hit making yeah, machines. But but yeah. ACDC was sort of one of the one exceptions that you know. They just got huge, and they can play stadiums, and uh, but they never changed their sound up, really. You know, there's no acoustic yeah, guitars on. You know, there's no power ballads on a ACDC record. No, they they found this the magic formula, and they just it's so simple but elusive to everybody else, I guess. But I, I oh years ago I was at Boston Beer Works in Boston obviously yeah <laughs> um and i was meeting a friend for a beer and they had a jukebox in there and somebody played shoot the thrill on the jukebox and i'm talking to my friend and when the drums come in everybody without even realizing it there were people around the room talking with their friends playing air drums and when the when the main song main piece of the song kicks in and phil rudd starts to play that beat every single person in that room was tapping their foot without even knowing it you know they they didn't interrupt their conversations or any but they were just tapping their foot and i'm I'm looking around going that's that's magic that is the magic that that's a band that's going to be around for 50 years and without having to spray their hair up and wear <laughs> yeah high heels and yeah if you can do that you don't have to do any of that other bullshit yeah yeah and i, th- and, I th- and it's funny i think of you know <clears throat> a band like maiden sort of is almost like a two-faced band because they you know they were put out a record like that and then they maybe tour that record and play stuff from that and then they'll you know two years later they do the you know the sort of the greatest hits tour and uh and it's like going to see, you know, ACDC or go see Iron Maiden and they have hits. <laughs> you know, you kind of forget how many, you know. But then they also, you know, they'll throw in Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, you know, which was probably one of the first one of those epics that they have. It's probably one of the only ones of those really long ones I can still listen to. You know, I think that was their, their first try at that was their, their best, <laughs> you know. Well, isn't, um, isn't that another symptom of being a band for four or five decades you kind of get trapped yeah. into your set list you with you have to play yeah these five songs yeah i know and it doesn't leave room for a lot of variation like cheap trick um and during their wilderness years they they didn't play they played i want you to want me second or third in the set on purpose because they just wanted to get it over with they just bang it out and move on and do what they really wanted to play. But there's so many bands like I know when Maiden played, uh, when Maiden did that tour for A Matter of Life and Death, they wanted to play the whole record. Yeah, I saw that tour. 
And they, what did they pull out a couple of tunes at the very end? Yeah. But I'm sure, I'm sure it was great. And I like that album, but I'm sure that people that have been waiting like three, five years to see Iron Maiden live, I'm sure they walked out of there thinking, well, that sucked. They didn't play this. They didn't play that. They didn't play this. Right. There's probably 10 songs that, that everybody was disappointed that they didn't play that night. It's, yes. Yeah. When I, they, they were doing like, uh, they would do most. I think they did the whole record, and then the end of the night they did like three old ones. But I remember one of the one of the ones they did was um, "Fear of the Dark," and I just remember thinking, out of all the songs in your catalog, they did you know Iron Maiden, maybe Two Minutes to Midnight, or and then that, you know. And I was like, really? That's the or the Trooper, maybe. But that was yeah. the third one. I was like, huh. okay. That's that's crazy. Yeah, I I told you the story. Um, I saw Cheap Trick at the Paradise, and they were having monitor issues. So Rick was talking to the crowd, just from the front of the stage, not through mics. And he was asking, "What do you guys want us to play?" And uh, two or three people were yelling really loudly, "She's tight." So he he goes, "Okay," and he walked back to the other three guys, and they talked it over, and it wasn't on the set list. I could, I had the set list like right in front of me. It wasn't on there and they all just kind of nodded and said, okay. And they played it when the monitors came back up, they played it. And I thought that was really cool. I doubt that any giant stadium touring band could do that. Even though um, I, I think Elvis Costello did a tour and when he hit Boston, I, he played the Orpheum. I remember this. Yeah. Um, and I forget what it was called. It was like something like the spin the wheel, a wheel of oh, music. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, like a wheel with all the songs. Or yeah, he had song titles on a wheel, and he spun <laughs> the wheel, and wherever it landed is what he played. I thought yeah. that was really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty cool. Way, way to prevent yourself getting bored. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, switching up this, the order of the set list, too, I imagine. Yeah. I think that's – I think I got to give Steve Harris a lot of credit because he's – he wants to – try to give he wants to find value for the fans in some way oh yeah definitely somehow yeah and he does he doesn't want to just do the same thing over and over every cycle yeah. and it was a bold move to do that album yeah a to z um and it ran the risk of disappointing a lot of people but but at least it wasn't the same thing over and over and yeah. over you know yeah yeah no i know and as it like as an artist yourself you know you don't want to when you write a new song that you love you kind of that's all you really want to you know you want you want to play that for people and you know someone with a you know that's written you know 150 songs like we were saying before <clears throat> you're sick of playing <laughs> you're probably sick of playing the trooper every night you know <clears throat> you want to play this new song about some you know random uh world war Two battle or something or you know and from the performer's point of view, it must be tough to when you're when you're a band that's had has a track record and has had hits, hit records, hit singles, and you know you play, you play. Um, I'm trying to think of you play "Walk This Way," you play uh, "Last Child," and you play "Draw the Line," and and then here's one from the new album. Right. Everybody, <laughs> yeah. everybody turns around and goes and get a beer and goes yeah. to the restroom. Yeah, um, that's tough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they, and Iron Maiden too. They, you know, 
they do those tour the tours where they're playing a lot of the hits, but they they add songs. You know, some years where the, you know, like the the last tour, they added uh, "Where Eagles Dare" from uh, "Peace of Mind," which I, I thought was pretty cool. They hadn't done that in you know thirty years or something, and they they usually add. And Rush used to do that too. They would add. You know, I remember one year they were doing circumstances from hemispheres which you know a lot of those songs you know those guys especially him he couldn't hit those those high notes from those you know yeah he's not going to be and doing that, i think i saw um one of those last rush tours they they started to play cygnus x1 oh yeah i remember that yeah which is yeah. is one of my absolute oh, favorite yeah. songs Definitely. ever yeah and they got pretty far into it yeah but right right when the vocals <sighs> Yeah, got crazy. They segued into something else. And yeah, it was like I remember. That. I get it. I yeah. get it. You know, there's no way. Yeah, yeah. He that that song especially. I don't think he could uh, hit those notes at this point. <laughs> at this point, you know. The other thing that um, I think is worth mentioning about having a really long career and a big catalog is, mm-hmm. I remember when the Ramones were they decided to retire. And um, it, it's kind of struck me that this is this was at a time when the latest trend, which was pretty much just driven by MTV and uh, Clear Channel Radio, was punk rock. And, and by punk rock, I, I I mean the Offspring and Rancid and Green Day, which which is a complete travesty calling it punk rock it was pop it was pop rock but um you know all those bands were influenced by the ramones every band on the planet has been influenced by the ramones one one way or another and it was just really sad that you know their record came out and and they weren't selling records. They never, I don't even know if they have any certified albums. I really don't. Um, they, they're broke. They're, you know, they, they're just done. And it was sad. They, they got asked to invited onto Lollapalooza where, where they're playing with punk bands, quote unquote, that are half their age. Yeah. And selling way more records oh, than yeah. them. They wouldn't have existed without the Ramones. Yeah, and that was just kind of tragic to me yeah. that they, they, they ended the way they did, where they were just completely overshadowed by bands that they influenced directly. Yeah. Um. That that's. I guess the phenomena would be, if you survive long enough to be overshadowed by the bands that you influenced. I know, right? And it looked like for a while it looked like that might be Motorhead's fate, but they they actually had a real solid late career resurgence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They did sort of become one of those uh, those bands, and then they just became, you know, way more respected than, you know, they were for, for a long time with, you know, Reason, you know, one of the most influential uh, bands for, for, you know, the stuff you and I love, especially, that comes after the stuff we're talking about tonight, you know. Yeah, and I, I think... Um, it didn't really matter which late period Motorhead album you went out and you bought because they were they're all pretty much interchangeable. Yeah. 
but they were consistently good. They were, yeah, yeah. they were, they were consistent. So, you know, they, they rode that wave of respect mm-hmm. and, um, consistency yeah and they they survive long enough for things to turn around and go their way yeah did i hear the the, the drummer one of the drummers from motorhead is on that new uh, scorpion song we we're talking about yeah he joined yeah. a couple of years ago yeah huh, i didn't realize it um so I mean, he's definitely underutilized in that band yeah. <laughs> yeah the guy is a monster player yeah and that's uh mikey mickey d mikey d yeah 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 um so we talked about you know doing another uh episode of this stuff talking about thrash and sort of underground metal and and that stuff so with that said your band wargasm you know you you've we were talking about uh, you know reissues of records and uh you've done you know a great job i think with with your back catalog and that's definitely a testament to you just as like a longtime fan of of music and as a collector giving you know fans what they you know want to see like cool liner notes and you know nice packaging and you know having a you know a physical copy of something especially you know i never that first record wasn't even on vinyl originally right no it was yeah oh oh it was okay yep i still have two copies left no and it's on it's on vinyl again so thanks thanks for saying so um i think that yes i am a collector yeah and and i appreciate when care and attention is given to to this stuff as a buyer myself if the package is is nice and the the quality of what you're holding in your hand is is up there then then it's value for money and yeah. and um i try to put as much information into yeah. it as i can so you don't just get the the music you also get the story yeah um and i think a lot of that came from for so many years we did not have any control over what happened to our catalog we were yeah. assigned to three different labels and you know those three different records went three different ways over the decades. And, um, when I, when I found out that we actually controlled two of them and maneuvered into the other two, into ownership of the other two, um, suddenly we had control over it. Yeah. So instead of the bootleggers out there, deciding what the packaging looks like and what's inside the booklet and what they, what the remaster sounds like. Um, I got to decide that. Yeah. So I, I really made sure I'm the archivist in the band. I have everything. Yeah. And and I mean everything. Yeah. Um, they call the, the room that I keep all this stuff in, they call it the museum. (laughs) I have, it's ridiculous what I have. So, and, and I finally had a chance to utilize all of it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm really proud of um, the albums themselves, obviously, but also the the reissues. I think um, they're exactly what we wanted them to be all along, and then we finally had the chance to do it. Yeah, yeah. And then just as a, a band, musically, 
you know, I, I see, you know, sort of the growth. You know, the first record is definitely a, just a straight-up great thrash metal album. Uh, but the second record, I think, I, you know, that's where I start to hear the Deep Purple and UFO influences and just sort of like this stuff that we talk about a lot, you know. I mean, you hear it obviously in the in the first record, but I think it's uh, maybe you guys got more comfortable with <clears throat> this is, you know, just bringing all those influences in without sounding like, you know, a ripoff of, of one of those bands. It wasn't a conscious thing. Yeah. Um, I think if you if you look at the three different guys and their three different influences yeah where we came together was um the new wave of british heavy metal yeah and also the late 70s like priest ufo rainbow thin lizzy uh blue oyster cult so if you put that the thing about thrash is and and basically everything that came after that like death metal black metal yeah songwriting songwriting wasn't as important as like how how fast you could play yeah and how sick the solo was right right and the double bass oh my god he's that double bass is so fast like <laughs> yeah. it it beca- it became a contest like who's the fastest who's the heaviest right. yeah and songwriting just didn't seem important at all and what songwriting that there was in thrash it it was a very tight template that you had to follow and if you kind of strayed too far outside the the rules of thrash then it wasn't thrash anymore and we we never really we didn't come out thinking we were a thrash band we we never intended to be a thrash band we we just we played what whatever we wrote we 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 didn't write anything we didn't like obviously we we wrote for each other and that's just what came out it's it's definitely like late 70s metal plus new wave of british heavy metal but then the the context that we existed in was was underground thrash so so if you mix that all together that's that's what we got but i i i still I'm not just saying this to be contrarian and and cool. I don't think we, I don't really think we were a thrash band and maybe it's easier for me to see from the inside. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know what you you, you were aiming for. And and the, the objective kid who buys the CD and listens to it and says, that's thrash. Then, then that they have an absolute right to that assessment. And I can't really be objective about it because I'm, I'm, I'm in it. Yeah, yeah. But um, we we never thought of ourselves as such a thing. Yeah, I know. I make I make some playlists, and I'll have you know, Wargasm mixed in with you know, UFO, Metallica, Deep Purple, and uh, it all fit. You know, it doesn't. None of it sounds weird. You know, and it's. it's I guess that's a testament to that. Where I guess it isn't just. You know, where like something like Anthrax kind of sounds a little out of place on that, unless it's you know from spreading the disease, maybe. <laughs> but you know, something from yeah. that, that yet you know state of euphoria mixed in with that same stuff sticks out like a sore thumb. You know, so. I, I think I, I appreciate you saying that. I I thank you. Um, yeah. I think if you 
graded our CDs with like the thrash against the thrash standard. I think we deviate too much yeah, from, yeah. from the, the doctrine, the rules. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I don't think we're like a pure thrash band, like yeah. a, like, a, like an overkill or an excess. Right. Or, right. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm glad I, I, I still, I look back and I, I think, you know, I wish that as a bass player and in orgasm, I didn't really have a chance to do a heck of a lot because it was a lot of it was a hundred miles an hour. And, um, and when we had the chance to stretch out and this with the second record specifically ugly and actually on the third one too, um, that's where we made a conscious effort to, to all for all three of us to, to be able to make musical statements in the songs and, and each, each one of us, um, have a piece of personality in the song. So, um, that's where the thrash part goes out the window. Cause yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, it's thrash, thrash is just like unison playing. Everyone's playing yeah. the same, the yeah. same time. Yeah. Yeah, you guys were more of a metal band, just a a traditional heavy metal band. But God, I wonder what we would sound like after forty years. <laughs> I know. I, I I always think about that with uh, some bands that are just you know artists that died, like you know like John Lennon would you know would even be putting like terrible music out with you know Bono <laughs> ten years ago, or so. Sometimes it's a a blessing in disguise when uh, artists stop, you know, not when they pass away, obviously, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> when how long are these guys going to be able to perform? Yeah, yeah. Really? And, and sell tickets? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not, I'm not uh, being ageist here. Uh, I'm just being realistic. Um, it was disappointing to me when I, the last time I saw Judas Priest, I saw, I saw Judas Priest, um, and Iron Maiden at the Orpheum. It was the, they were on the Killers tour and the Point of Entry tour. And Alfred, Alfred was awesome. Alfred was the front man. He was, he had just had the crowd right in the palm of his hand, his every move. He was awesome. And I saw him again on the Screaming for Vengeance tour. I saw him on the um, Defenders of the Faith tour. Yeah, that's the first and one then I saw. Skip a million years ahead, and I saw them at Greatwood maybe, maybe eight years ago, six or eight years ago. And he, he just kind of held his mic with both hands and stared at his feet the entire show. And... I don't, I don't uh, hold it against them because you know you you get old and you're not. Time happens and it happens to me too. But I guess every fan just has to question whether that's value for money. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I was there, so I wanted to be there. But um, I just it just makes me question: How long are we gonna? <laughs> How long are they going to be able to do it, and how long are people going to want to go see it? Yeah, I know it's, it's funny because that last Maiden tour, they, you know, I remember thinking, well, Dickinson, 
is really pulling out the <laughs> at one point he had like a flamethrower strapped on you know he's got a wool jacket on for uh where eagles dare you know because he's you know this the snow mountain theme or whatever yeah. and uh yeah and he you know he didn't stop the whole the whole night and uh it's funny it's funny when i saw him <laughs> do that uh matter of life and death tour they played that arena that's uh, on Com Ave in Boston, the, the, at BU, whatever that's called. It's the Walter. Aganis. The Aganis. And one of the songs on that record is maybe a part where he's like maybe almost talking in the middle of it. And he was sitting on top of an amp. And the, the whoever was doing the lights missed the cue and couldn't like find him. And, <laughs> and he stopped and he goes, I'm over here, you fucking cunt. Or something like that. It was, it was actually. <laughs> It's actually kind of funny, but uh, he's doing a spoken word tour. Did you see that? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. I might be interested to hear hear him talk. He's he's kind of a trip, but he he's, he's one of those ones I think can still you know hold it on stage. You know. Yeah, he sounds great, and and uh, Robin Zander from Cheap Trick still sounds great. Yeah. Um, Gillen sounds great. Well, uh, I'm gonna differ with you there. Yeah. Okay, but I, maybe ten years ago when I saw him, he he was he sounded good. I saw him uh, four or five years back. Yeah, at Great Woods, the Deep Purple and Alice Cooper. Oh yeah, yeah. You know what I saw that he was a little. He was uh, really, really struggling. Yeah, and it's it breaks my heart because I've I've been a huge Gillen fan since yeah. since uh, obviously since seventy eight. Right. With Deep Purple, but also I followed him through the Gillen band and then went back and got the Ian Gillen band albums and obviously black Sabbath and and the reunion of deep purple and Mm -hmm. just uh, his music, probably him and Lemmy are the two human beings whose music I own the most of. Okay. And it's just real. It was tough to watch him really struggling and not really able to do it. Um, and then Alice Cooper came out, and I have to say, I've never seen anybody in such total command of a stage before in my life. He he just was born to do that, and everybody was just riveted to him. And he's somebody who, he was never, like, the greatest vocalist. So it doesn't really matter, like, if he can still pull it off, because he... He can because it's not too much of a challenge, I guess. But um, it was amazing just watching him oh, do yeah. his thing. It, yeah. was, it was riveting. Yeah. Yeah, that was actually the first time I saw him, too, that, that tour. <laughs> I never saw him back uh, back in the day. So it was cool to, to see him still have it. He's Yeah, unfortunately, if you look back over his career arc yeah he's got a lot he's got he's got a lot of of duds yeah and this is where i pull out my um my equation yeah if you if your band if 50 percent of your albums are bad it's time to break up yeah yeah um but that's a scary equation because if you (laughs) if you apply that to alice cooper i don't know if he would still be yeah available and and black sabbath too oh Um, yeah definitely sabbath yeah but then another point that we we discussed last time was there may be like whole eras of 
bands that you skipped. Yeah. Yep. Uh, because of a band member change or yeah, um, maybe they broke up and got back together again and you just skipped it. But now's the time to go back and check out those albums because there's, there's not many more records from these guys coming out. And, and, you know, if you skipped all the Tony Martin black Sabbath albums, sooner or later, you're going to go back and check them out because yeah. you're, there's not gonna there's be anything not, left. Yeah. There's nothing else coming out. I've done that. I, I was I was a purist when I was in high school. I was I would find these hard and fast, draw these big black lines saying, Nope, no more. I'm done. And, and then in my 30s and 40s, I'd go back and, and revisit those albums that I skipped for the stupid stupid reasons and and find some real gems in there. So I'm pretty much if I'm into a band, I pretty much at this point I just buy the whole catalog. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because even the bad albums are part of the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The when we were talking last time, I think we talked a little bit about uh, Turbo and sort of the other, the Ram It Down and Painkiller. But and I and I went and I made a, a playlist with just all the Priest albums in order, the studio studio ones and the well, I I didn't put the live, but I put. Uh, Unleashed in the East, and uh, and yeah, when I got to Turbo, I was like, yeah, I just, <laughs> I, I can't, I couldn't. If, no, and you know, there was, I remember, you know, okay, this is a pretty good song, and but in the context of a Judas Priest album, it's just, it's, it's, you know, and then that, and then that Painkiller one, when they, you know, are sort of trying to do the, the real heavy, thrashy stuff. Mm-hmm just didn't do it but and i think they're just best when they're a lot of these bands when they're just being judas priest and yeah that last record was was a testament to that you know there's there's still some places where i can't go i i can't do turbo yeah I, and i can't i don't own anything metallica's done after injustice after after master of puppets yeah and and it, like i said before those rush albums i just can't do yeah but there are there are bands. I'm trying to think of an example um, where they're they're bad albums I own because they're at least interesting. Yeah, there's an interesting story behind it, or right. you know, it, it's bad for a reason. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kiss was another one I never uh, I never really went past uh, the the non makeup stuff. E even with the makeup, you know, I only kind of went up to love gun you know and then uh me too me yeah. too i think my favorite band of all time i would probably have to say is cheap trick yeah they have a couple of bad albums but i have all of them because i again i just like to listen to them i i the 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 judgment the subjective and the objective you know it's i know it's bad but I still like listening to it because it's cheap trick. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's familiar, you know. Those Rush albums aren't bad. Right. They're just not aesthetically pleasing to me. Right, yeah. Um, it's, it's That's funny that, you know, when you juxtapose those two things where the Rush albums I do not like. Yeah. But but I still can acknowledge that they're good records. Yeah, yeah. yeah cause and the cheap trick are... albums that I I don't like it all and I acknowledge that they're crap but I still enjoy <laughs> listening to them. Yeah, yeah. I that's know. 
<laughs> that's just that's just me. I don't, I don't know. I yeah. can't explain it. <laughs> I'm like that with the, like with the same with like the Scorpions and Aerosmith. You know, I I, I just I I just don't think those are good records. <laughs> those is, maybe more so with Aerosmith, all the the hit ones. I just it's just not my thing. My favorite one. bad record of all time is yeah. um, "Sing Monkey Sing" by Raging Slap. Yeah. Now I got to interview um, Greg yeah. and Elise before she passed mm-hmm. for my blog, and it was intentional on their part. Yeah. Because the label basically gave, had given up on them, and the budgets were all cut, and the label people stopped showing up at the studio, and they yeah. were just like contractually obligated to do one more record, so they threw them in the studio. And they they set to work to record a terrible album. Yeah, <laughs> and the playing is fantastic. Yeah. You know, they didn't they didn't sabotage themselves that way. Right. They ju- they just wrote really strange stuff. Yeah. That was as uncommercial. <laughs> I mean, it's in Captain Beefheart territory. Yeah, yeah. In some some cases, <laughs> um, but it's fascinating to yeah. listen to a band that's really good at what they did right. and great, great players and great imaginative writers intentionally say, fuck you to their label and intentionally hand them a piece of crap that they, that they can't, they can't promote. They can't make a dime off of. And Rick Rubin, because it was uh, deaf American. he, he refused to release it for a long time, but then he finally released it to the Columbia Records and Tape Club. <laughs> That's amazing. So yeah, it's a it's an interesting story, but uh, if you ever get a chance to listen to that record, you will hear it, it's a it's a brilliant bad record. Right. I'm writing it down, and then I'm just thinking, you're fucking recording this while you're writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. <laughs> that must be my cue that I'm getting tired. There you go. <laughs> um, yeah, let's. Uh, we'll, we'll, let, we should pick this up, sort of, time wise. You know, I guess it would be like the the late '80s when you know a lot of the the underground metal stuff starts to get bigger, and what happened with that in that world. And uh, although, that, you know, maybe even start back with the new wave of British heavy metal, which is sort of like the synthesis of a lot of that stuff and it's definitely like another turn in this world of music you know yeah and and many of the bands that are still around today and they're still making great music yeah 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 that's it you were talking about uh testament's last record and uh the voivod uh is another one of those uh bands that they're kind of their own thing i, th- I feel like because they've just I, I like all their stuff, and it's all different and weird, and they sound like a completely different band than they started at. But uh, I've I've been along for the ride, and, and that last record they put out is uh, is really good. The double, yeah, one. yeah, I saw it, it, it it's, it's um, it's a surprisingly strong late period record. Yeah, one of their best albums, you know, forty years in. Yeah, yeah, I know, and that's a thing to talk about you know how that happens you know with and they've had pretty much the same lineup most of the you know aside from uh the bass player right 
Well, Piggy passed away. Right. Um, so they've got a right now. It's um, half the band. Yeah. Okay. That, that it was. But the sound is still there. I mean, they they found the one guitarist on earth. <laughs> I know, right? That could that could play that way. I know. Miraculously. Yeah, I know. I don't. I, they're one of those bands where, like, I listen to it and I I don't understand a lot of how they come up with the, the stuff they do. So it's and it's cool that that's from the metal world because it's not necessarily metal. You know, if you played that for someone and said this is a these guys were a, sort of a metal band at one point. Even even their early stuff isn't is different. You know, they were always sort of just a weird outsider band, which why I always liked them. That's what drew me to them too. Is that they they kind of got lumped into the thrash scene yeah. in the beginning, and but they were the only band that was doing something different with it. Yeah, and I think the lyrics were a big thing. Like this, the sci-fi stuff was uh, interested me a lot. You know. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I appreciate uh, you doing this again, man. No problem. We'll uh, we'll do another one soon, and uh, yeah. I enjoyed it, and yeah. I appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah, of course. All right. Have a good night, Bob. You too. Keep me posted with the next one, and I'll be ready. Awesome. Thanks, man. Okay, bye. <laughs>